and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all them that live in Macedonia and Achaia, and from uh, you, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place where faith to God word is spreading abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and know how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There's a tremendous amount of truth here. There's much thankfulness. Remember, here in this first chapter, essentially the first ten verses, Paul is, is just being thankful. He's being thankful in this letter, writing to this church and telling them how much uh, he is grateful for uh, these things that he knows about them. Remember, uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas had been there at the foundation of the church and are writing and sending them these things to encourage them, strengthen them. Uh, and he gives some specific things already that we've gone over uh, that he's thankful for and mentions them uh, about in, in prayer, uh, remembering uh, their work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, and then as well knowing uh, their election of God for their gospel came not unto you word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. We talked about how it is the Holy Spirit who gives power to the gospel, to the preaching of the gospel, to the foundation of the church. There is no church without the gospel and there is no church without the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the gift to the church, not just to the churches as a whole. We often think that the only way that we can encounter or, or have some sort of experience with the Holy Spirit or know that the Holy Spirit's there is when we go to church. Well, that's not the case. The Holy Spirit is not just here, uh, residing here like this is the tabernacle or the temple of the Old Testament. Rather, we've been told that we are now the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. So when you go, the Holy Ghost goes. Nevertheless, we desire that when we come together as the church to uh, be a part of one another as members, as uh, people who come together with one faith, one Lord, one baptism, the, the whole thing, right? One spirit. Uh, as we do this, that the spirit would bring us power, would bring us the presence of God, would bring us unity. Uh, it is the spirit who gives us our purpose in this life and propels us forward to be used of God. And now in this chapter, you would think Paul would just jump straight into all these things of do this, don't do that. We often think that the Bible is just a list of do's and don'ts, but it's not. It's much more. These are letters here that Paul is writing, and as he writes to them, he thanks them for some things. And that we're going to see in verses 6-10, through 10, as he's thankful for knowing their witness and their transformation. Anytime the gospel is received, right, there will be a transformation. And there has to be. Real faith produces real works. Real faith will produce a work in us that the Spirit of God will change us. What does the Lord change, the outside or the inside first? The inside, that's right. It's always got to be the inside, uh, then the outside. Because the Lord looks on the inner parts, right? It's not that He doesn't care about the outer, but the inner affects the outer much more than the outer affects the inner. We often think of it the opposite direction because in every other religion, if we look at especially many of the Eastern religions from Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, many of these different things, the outer world affects the inner, right? So the idea of Buddhism that they often look at is uh, we have to reach this place of nirvana. We have to reach this place where um, this outside world just means nothing to us. We're no longer affected by it because they understand at least this much. The outer affects the inner. But they're trying to change their outer to change their inner. They're trying to change the world around them so that the world within them is okay. How about with Hinduism? Very much the same. 
And, and we go around and around and around and around and around is their idea until finally they get their inner man right. Now, it's not the case. Not the Bible. How about uh, with Islam? The same exact thing. The outer world affects their inner. Does the outer world affect us? Sure. Only as far as the inner man will allow it. Now, with this, we understand that God does a work from the inside out. He changes hearts, and then He changes our outer man. Because when we are changed by the Gospel from the inside, if we truly believe and know and receive the Gospel, there will be fruit from the inside then to the outside. Now, he talks about this. He says about how they received the Gospel. And this is of importance here as we look at this this morning. He says, you became followers of us. First of all, are we to be man followers? Well, this is the idea of not going, follow me because I'm Paul. Follow Timothy because he's Timothy. This is the idea of follow us as we follow Christ. Okay? Now, here's what he says. Be followers of us and of the Lord. Why? Because the goal is that we're always to follow the Lord. Now, are there some great examples of how to follow the Lord? Absolutely. God has given great men and women of God uh, who have served the Lord, who have been great examples of what it means to serve the Lord and to follow Him. But then here's what he gets to. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. This is incredibly important here. When the Thessalonians trusted Christ, there was an immediate change as they now began to be followers or imitators of Paul and Christ. They're now walking before Him. They are, uh, as Paul would go on to say, right? he says, follow me as I follow Christ. If Paul were to stop following Christ, do you continue to follow Paul? No. If I were to stop following Christ, would you follow me? No, you better not. There's no one in this world that we should follow if they are not following Christ. Because ultimately, the goal is that while we see this person, they're just a lamp pointing us to the light, right? Like John the Baptist. We're, we're getting pointed to Christ, okay? That's the goal. That's uh, our, our end all, be all. But here's what he says about this. You've received the word in much affliction. Now, that's very important about how they receive the word. We can receive the word of God uh, many times when things are going easy. But how to receive the word when there's affliction is a different story. That separates the real faith from the not so much. That separates the Christianity from the churchianity. That separates the real deal from those who are just playing a game. And there's plenty of both. There absolutely is. Now, whenever the gospel is received, opposition or affliction always follows. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The early church dealt with a lot of persecution. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, as the church is founded, that you can follow several things. One, the progression of not just the commandment, but the prophecy that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, And ye shall be my witnesses unto me, both unto Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? After the Holy Ghost has come upon them. That's the goal. So what is it? Is it their work? No. Is it the church work? No. It's the Holy Spirit who is... Uh, building the church, using the church, empowering the church, strengthening the church to uh, go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then uh, unto the uttermost parts, right, is the idea. So, with that in mind, when we read the book of Acts, what you see is that progression of those different sections of where the gospel is going. But you know what happens to get the gospel out of Jerusalem? Persecution. Persecution took place that then the believers were scattered and went, and it says specifically that they went about as they're scattered, preaching the word. 
They carry the gospel with them everywhere they go. Now, here's the thing. We often think that evangelism can only happen when we set up specific events or certain uh, you know, blitzes and things. Those are nice things and they're helpful things, but ultimately the greatest evangelism that has of the greatest effect is you and your individual daily life. Living the gospel, preaching the gospel, believing the gospel, sharing the gospel with everyone that you come in contact with, everyone that the Lord empowers you and strengthens you and lays upon your heart to pray for them, to, to preach to them, to continuously live your life in such a light. But when we do so, what comes with it? some persecution, some affliction. There's going to be people that don't like you. There's going to be people that think you're dumb, foolish, ignorant, right? They thought the same of Christ. They thought the same of the early church. They think the same today. Why? Because the fleshy of the carnal does not understand the spiritual. Despite, though, the influences of the world around them, despite the persecution around them, they still received and believed the gospel. They still lived for the gospel. That should be said of us. Now, here in the Bible Belt, we don't experience a whole lot of it, right? We might every now and again, I've had conversations with many people who've been serving the Lord longer than I've been alive. And, and they say, you know, when you give out tracts, a lot of times people around here, for the most part, will go, hey, thank you, right? You at least might get a polite enough for that. Very few will go, no, I don't want that, right? Very few do you have that around here. There's at least still yet a politeness. You go elsewhere, right? Go to uh, inner city, right? Go to another country. Go to another county, go to a place where it's not so much like here, and what you'll find is that there becomes much more affliction and opposition and things. How about this? We're finding um, even now in, in many civilized countries, you've got many in Canada and England, where there has been street preaching, right? Or, or even people just out telling people and quoting Scripture, reading their Bible on a sidewalk and passing out tracts, right? Sounds innocent enough to you and I. You know what's happened to many of them in places like England? Locked up. Jailed up for reading the Bible out loud on a sidewalk and for passing out gospel literature. Now, that's a place that's considered a free country, isn't it? A place that's considered to have much freedom. As a matter of fact, it's a place where many of the people here who don't like America go, oh, I'm going to move elsewhere, right? I'll go somewhere that's really free, right? That's not freedom. That is affliction. That's persecution for simply reading the Word and telling somebody else what the Bible says. Now, that's a mild case. Go a little bit further into some of them of those of those uttermost parts of the earth, and what you'll find is that there is much greater affliction than what you and I could imagine. You get saved, you're immediately on the hunt, right? People are now hunting you, hunting your family, leaving signs on your door, much like they did to the Jews in in, uh, in Europe during the time of World War II. Uh, you, uh, we're coming for you. Uh, we're hunting you. Get out, right? Or, or we're, we're going to exterminate you. They'll burn your house. They'll burn your church. All these things. And this stuff is very real today. There is a very real hatred and disdain for the gospel. The lost world hates the gospel. You say, but the gospel is good news. Yes, it is. And it's even good news to them if they would believe. But the gospel, the other side of the coin, it's good news because there's bad news. And the very fact that there's bad news, they don't like that. The gospel confronts us with the fact that we need a Savior, that we need to be born again, and it confronts us with our sin. It confronts us with that there is a God in heaven who we will give answer to. Now Morris writes here, the word for affliction outside of the Bible usually denotes literal pressure and that of a severe kind. The corresponding verb, for example, was used of pressing the grapes and winemaking till they burst asunder and so metaphorically came to mean very great trouble. So this word here that they receive it in affliction is this idea 
There is this great deal of pressure, right? You ever squeeze a grape till it popped? Anybody? Buy a grape and do it. It's, it's sort of satisfying. When I was uh, younger, I worked in a grocery store. I was a bagger, but the baggers, we also got the buggies. We bagged the groceries. We helped clean up, whatever was needed. But at the end of the night, we always had to take down the produce and put it away in the cooler for the night. And of course, you know, as mature as we were, we, we like to take a grape or two and have grape fights and all that stuff. And you put enough pressure on a grape, you know what it's going to do? It's going to pop. It's going to burst. The idea here is that there is so much pressure coming upon them, and yet what do they do? They receive the gospel. And we'll get to the last portion of verse 6. That's going to be the key there. You see, God gives His power and His presence in the midst of persecution. And what we're going to see here, He says, with joy of the Holy Ghost. But the verse before. You received the, uh, you, for the gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and much assurance. And then he says in verse 6, He became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. It is the Spirit that gives power and peace during the midst of persecution. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs or Jesus Freaks and many of these accounts, or read The Voice of the Martyrs today. It's a monthly magazine. They have different articles throughout the, each week that tell about the persecuted church throughout the world. And if you look and you read some of these things, you know what you often find? You find people even today who are much like uh, Stephen who is being stoned to death in the book of Acts, who are able, as they are dying with their dying breaths, to pray for their persecutors, to proclaim the gospel one more time to their persecutors. What a peace, what a confidence that has to be. And that can only come from the Holy Ghost of God. Though affliction and persecution came, so did joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the key. See, when we find real affliction, what else can we find at the same time? Joy. It makes no sense to our flesh, does it? That we can have joy in the midst of sorrow, joy in the midst of affliction, but that's something that only God can do. Our flesh, and only in our flesh, we will never experience both sorrow and joy. We'll experience one or the other, but it's the Holy Spirit that comes alongside of us right, as our, as our help uh, and, and fills us up and is able to give us joy when there should be affliction, when there should be this pressure. He's able to give wisdom and strength and guidance and all of these things that are so necessary. Guzik writes, Not long before coming to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas personally experienced the principle of having the joy of the Holy Spirit even the presence of much affliction, when they sang in the Philippian jail despite their chains and suffering. They were examples of this same spirit to the Thessalonian Christians. If you go back and you read what Paul writes about his own persecutions that he faced, he faced a great deal of things. Things that you and I uh, couldn't even imagine going through and yet still pressing on for the Gospel. We hear people all the time who talk about I, um, I would die for Jesus. I would die for Jesus. But we hardly really live for Him if we think about it. Now, we, we should never boast about being prepared to die for Christ when we've never been placed in such a situation as that. We barely know what it means to have our hand touch the fire, let, let alone uh, to be in the midst of such pressure and, and affliction that these believers are facing. Yet they receive it nonetheless through the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, and with joy of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost in verse number 6. Paul was an example of it. As he gave there that example of, of being there in the Philippian jail, in the midst of chains, in the midst of shackles, in the middle of the night, and what do they do? They praise the Lord anyways. We must never lose the joy of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Green writes, Joy was one of the chief outcomes of people's conversion to Christ. And the strength of this joy was such that the adversity that they faced could not destroy it. What determined these Christian at, Christians' attitudes uh, and their persecutions was not their circumstances, but rather their experience of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something simple, right? When you got saved, did you experience sorrow or joy? Joy. Was it a lot of joy or a little bit of joy? A whole lot, right? Why? You had just been saved. You now have assurance. You've received the gift of the Spirit. You've received God Himself. You have now uh, experienced what forgiveness and love truly looks like. And now you know that if you took your last breath that very next moment, you're going to meet your Lord. Right? That's joy. And yet for some reason, the longer we live life, we lose that sense of joy. If the believer should ever be identified with something, certainly it should be joy. We find joy over and over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures that identify believers as being joy-filled. How can we be joy-filled? Only through the Spirit of God. Our flesh goes through happiness and sadness, right? Our flesh goes through ups and downs, even in the middle of a day. I was talking to someone earlier this week, and we talked about seasons being, you know, the change of seasons, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall, the whole thing. But we talk about spiritual seasons as well. We can experience spiritual seasons in the middle of a day. These highs and these lows and these tosses and turns and, and changes, right? How do we remain joyful? Not by living in the flesh, but by living in the power of the Spirit of God. The flesh seeks happiness, but our spirit seeks the joy of the Lord. It is controlled and empowered by joy. All of Christians, all of the church of God should be Living lives that are full of joy. Does this mean that we're constantly walking around and we're just, right? Maybe not. Because we can even have joy when we don't have a smile on our face. Joy is not something that has to be shown on the outside or is affected on the outside, but rather is one that comes from the inner man. It's one that comes from someone who has assurance of God, assurance in God. Now, here, I love the way that he writes it, that it, it the, what determined these Christians' attitude and persecutions was not their circumstances, but rather their experience in the, of the Holy Spirit. When we have a tough time, what, what's the first thing that happens? Our whole mood changes, right? right? It, the moment that we're late for something, the moment that something doesn't go our way, you, your check engine light comes on, uh, you're, you're, you, know, you're, you, call, you spill your coffee in the drive-thru. I mean, a million different things that can happen in a day or a morning. And what happens? Our, our, we feel as if our whole day is shot. These folks are literally facing persecution for just being Christians. And there's going to be worse persecutions as the years, decades, and centuries come. They will eventually, some of these Christians in the early church, the first and second, third century, would face persecution where they would be uh, beheaded for sport. They would be placed in the arenas to be eaten by lions. They would be tied to stakes and they would be abused and tortured. Some of them would even be uh, impaled and placed in, in uh, the garden of the emperor to be lit aflame to light his garden so he could walk at night. That's the sort of thing that they would face. Parents would watch as their children were tortured, but you would not give up the faith. Children would watch their parents be tortured. Husbands watching wives being abused. Yet, their faith would remain strong. We know little of affliction, but I would tell us this morning, right? And I tell myself this as well. 
I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have in our country. But will we not be so foolish to think that as other countries have gone this way, that ours could not as well? We are watching as other nations who are considered to be free, democratic, or Judeo-Christian nations in, the, in Western Europe crumble and they are beginning to persecute those who speak the truth of the Word of God and hold it as the Word of God. We're watching censorship starting to take place even in our own nation at a rapid state. Everything that we can do now as a nation is focused on how can we silence the Bible. Not silence conservatism necessarily, but silence the Bible because ultimately, anytime that you'll find anything that looks remotely like traditional values, it's going to come from the Scripture anyways. What can we do to silence the Word of God? Do not think that we will ever not see it. It's happening. Slowly but surely. But rather, we should not be going, oh, woe is me, but we should be full of joy. The early Christians who suffered persecution and the Christians today who suffer persecution, thank God that they suffer for His namesake. We have lost such a mindset that we would be willing to suffer for any sake, let alone the sake of Christ. They counted an honor, a joy, and a blessing. My home church, uh, several years back when Cammie and I were there, they were able to, we were able to do a fundraiser, many fundraisers and to help send Bibles to Senegal. It had been decades since they had Bibles uh, given or sent uh, to the nation itself. There were pastors who at most in their uh, library had a, a gospel or maybe a New Testament if they were lucky. They got these Bibles and, and the Lord greatly blessed the work. Many came to know Christ. Many churches were planted. Many churches were strengthened. And not too long ago, I had heard um, just through the reports from the missionary who had gone and helped to see these things through that um, the Muslim uh, had come in and they had uh, stolen Bibles, burned churches, beaten and jailed many of the believers, hospitalized dozens in this big brawl and this big um, sort of mob that happened. And when the believers were talked to by the missionary, when they had conversation with them, they praised the Lord for the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. What a testimony that is. Now as we look here, these people have now become examples to us of what it means to be afflicted, but as well what it means to have joy in the Holy Ghost in the middle of affliction. Where we have affliction in life, what should be the partner to our affliction? Joy. Someone passes away. Though there's affliction, though there's sadness, what should there also be in the Spirit of God? Joy. Though trials are coming and though uh, you might be walking through a a deep, dark valley. What can we have in the middle of it? Joy. And joy will never come from our flesh nor the outside world. It will only come from the Spirit of God within us who points us to His Word. One author writes, their conviction in the face of opposition had become an example. Yea, even a pattern for all other Christians in the region. Macedonia was the northern region of Greece of whence was Thessalonica. Achaia was southern portion of the Greek peninsula, including Corinth, from whence Paul wrote this epistle. In other words, these young Thessalonian Christians have become a pattern and example for all other brethren of the region. Paul reminded them thereof to further encourage them. You know, it's an encouraging thing to know that you've made a difference, isn't it? It's an encouraging thing to know that you maybe got to play a small part in someone coming to, to faith. 
It's an encouraging thing to know when you read those missionary letters and you see souls being saved overseas and stuff to know, hey, our church played a little part in that. We might not have gotten to be the ones to go and to proclaim or to preach or to set up the church, but we were able to give. We were able to pray. Uh, to, to be a part of something uh, larger than ourselves, but ultimately all of us want to be a good example, don't we? Right? There's no one in here who would say, I want to be a bad example. No, we would all say we want to be a good one. Nevertheless, regardless of whether you want to be a good one or a bad one, or if you are a good one or a bad one, you are an example nonetheless. Eyes are constantly watching. Ears are constantly listening to see where we go, what we do, how we are. And even more so, the way in which we exemplify things in the middle of affliction. Children learn much from their parents as they watch them. They watch and learn even more when things are difficult. Right when uh, young boys learn from their fathers that uh, the, the car is broke down and the dad has the choice to curse and throw the wrench or to not curse and to not throw the wrench and to go about fixing it anyways. There's lessons to be learned, isn't it? Little eyes constantly learn, but so do other eyes. We never stop learning. We never stop seeing examples But here's the thing, we never stop being examples for good or for bad. We're always constantly influencing others, and it's not so that people would know, oh, we want our church to be like Victory Wave Church. No, we want them to know that they want to be like Christ. The goal for every church, for every believer, is to be Christ-like, Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-honoring in all things. What a testimony. It would be said of a church, though, that an entire region goes, wow, they've got it, they're the real deal. That other believers now in the region have seen what it means to suffer, what it means to be afflicted, what it means to be full of joy. And as we're going to get into the rest of this uh, chapter, what it means to proclaim the truth, to preach the gospel, to live for the gospel. Every believer in church should desire to be an example to both the lost and the saved. However, we should never desire to be an example out of pride, but of humility to glorify Christ in all things. As Paul, Silas, and Timothy all said, hey, follow us as we follow Christ, it was never follow us for the sake of following us. As a matter of fact, Paul would preach against that stuff. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because uh, you've got some who would go, oh, well, Paul baptized me. Apollos baptized me. All these different schisms that had happened in the church. We've got all these different camps. All these different folks and all these different groups that you're on this side, you're on that side, and if you're on this side, you can't like the people on this side, and if you like this one, well, you can like this one, but you can't like that one. This stuff is, is maddening. It's absolutely insane. The one that we must focus on, and the only one to focus on, is the Lord Jesus Himself. He tells us in verse 7, they've become examples to Macedonia and to Achaia, these different regions throughout where they are and on the outer rim These people know this church. They know what they stand for. They know what they've gone through. But even more so through that, what do they know even more about them? They know the God that they love and serve. We look back at this earlier portion of the chapter. They now know and have seen through their example. What is their example? How do they see this happen? Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. They continued steadfast in these things. In the midst of affliction, they continued steadfast with joy while this pressing on upon them is happening. It's this idea that they've got all this world around them pressing on against it. And we have it today, don't we? 
The only difference is that we don't have little regions where this region has no gospel influence here. This one doesn't. We've got very little of that anymore, it seems. But we, what we've got is the world itself seems to be pressing against the truth of God. And we have an option. We have choices here. Will we choose to live for Christ regardless of the circumstances? Will we choose to have joy in the midst of whatever may come our way? Or will we go the way of the world? Guzik writes, as Christians, we always need others. We will. Uh, we always need others who will show us how to follow Jesus Christ, beyond the need of hearing about how to follow Him. Every one of us that come to church, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we go through this humdrum where we hear the Bible all the time, don't we? And that's a good thing because we need those things. We need to hear the Word of God. But what else do we need besides to hear it, to see it? Look back a couple of verses. He had said for our gospel, back in verse 5 rather, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Ghost, and much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Not only did they hear the word preached, but they saw the word lived. It will do you no good to hear the word of God and then to do nothing with it. It will do us no good if, if I preach the truth of God's word, but then when I'm not here, I don't live it. It will do you and your neighbors and your friends and your family no good if you tell them the truth of the gospel and you live none of it out. If you don't live in obedience to the Scripture, to the Word of God. We must always be followers before we can be examples. We must always be followers before we can be leaders. Even those who are leaders, leaders in the church, leaders outside of the church, Every leader must be a follower first. In order to lead, we have to follow Christ. In order to lead others to Christ, we must follow Christ. In order to lead others and how to lead others to Christ, we have to follow Christ. Everything comes down to following Him, trusting in Him. We must always be followers of Christ. And as followers, display what it, is, uh, what it means to truly follow Christ for the sake of others. The Word of God and the work of God, we want that to go forth, don't we? But this begins individually with our personal walk. Experiencing the Gospel then makes us examples for the Gospel. How many of you are saved this morning? Anybody? Right? If you're saved this morning, truly saved, what have you done? You've experienced the Gospel. That Jesus loved me even though I was a sinner. He died for me. He rose again to offer me eternal life. And I've put my trust in Him because I couldn't save myself. And now I have assurance and confidence in Him alone. What does that now do? That experience of being saved. And now causes us to be examples for the gospel. I would ask us this morning, as a church, as individuals, do we display what it means to follow Christ? On Sunday mornings, probably so. How about Monday mornings or Tuesday afternoons? How about when things get tough? When you are going through the worst you could possibly go through, and you might be right now, are you showing others what it means to follow Christ in the middle of a storm? Are you showing what it means to follow Christ and to have joy in the midst of affliction or sorrow? May it be our heart that wants to not only experience the gospel to be saved, 
but then exemplify the Gospel so that others may come to know Christ as well. Let us pray this morning. God, we love You. We thank You for this time. Grateful that we could study Your Word. Help us, each, each one of us, Lord. Uh, and Lord, starting with me to, to not only experience the truth of the Gospel, but to be an example of it. God, help us to live it out, to proclaim it, to love it, Lord, to walk it. God, help us this morning. I pray that you would stir within our hearts. God, give us what we need. Help us to come to you desiring to worship you, Lord, that we would unashamedly uh, sing and, and lift up our hearts and our voices to you. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. And God, we pray that you would do a great mighty work today through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.